Thanks, Andrew. Evening, everyone. Uh, there's a question. What does the perfect church service look like? Or what does a perfect church service look like? Uh, if, I, if, I got, <clears throat> if I got you to discuss that or to feedback, I, I think I'm pretty sure, in fact, there would be some brilliant uh, and interesting answers and suggestions. Uh, those who lead our services uh, at Windsor, like Andrew this evening or Niall this morning, they invest a lot of thought and prayer into what we do together during our church services. How we do it, what we sing, what we say, because they believe and they know that this time together matters. What we do corporately is really important. And as we get back into Ecclesiastes, if you've been following this series at the beginning of chapter five, which is where we've got to, it's this issue in part anyway that the preacher turns to and addresses and considers the nature of our services, a sense. Here's how uh, C.S. Lewis once responded to that opening question. He said, the perfect church service would be one we were most unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. It's a great answer. Don't you wish you could come up with answers like that? But actually, as we're about to see and discover, it, it kind of captures the preacher's perspective to some extent. Now, for those who, as I say, have been here on Sunday evenings recently, you're going to soon realize that there's a definite change of pace and shift in focus in the first seven verses of chapter five compared to the first four chapters, and we're going, to, we're going to read them in a second. But up to now, the preacher, as the writer of this book describes himself, up to this point, he has been very much preoccupied with life out there, life in a sense, under the sun. But here at the beginning of chapter five, and this comes as a kind of bit of a jolt, it seems that he steps into church to see what is going on in there. Out there, so to speak, as he's looked around, and that's what he's been doing in those first four chapters, he's been left with what at times comes across as a sense of despair. And so the question is, will it be any different in here? Will it be any different in the church or in the temple in his context? And what we find, and this shouldn't surprise us, is that he's got some significant things to say. Insights which were clearly relevant back then, still relevant today. And so, if you are able and willing, please do stand with me for the public reading of God's word, which in some ways is maybe even more appropriate than usual. Please stand. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice to fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, 
fear God. Have a seat. The preacher seems to zero in at some level here on, on the worship of God, which is the highest activity which people can engage in. It's the very thing we were created for. It's our chief end. Or as A.W. Tozer described it, it is the normal employment of moral beings to worship. Now, before we consider the preacher's comments, uh, just a couple of points to note. Worship is more than what we do here at church. I know that. The Bible teaches and stresses that worship is also what we do at work. It's what we do at home. It's how we live our lives. Whole life worship is something we often talk about. And so when Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, listen, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Your whole life should be worship. But in Ecclesiastes 5, the focus that would seem is on gathered or corporate worship. So that's the first point. Worship is more than what we do together, but that's the focus of this. And the other thing is that the preacher says nothing in here about the style of worship when we gather. And I know most conversations regarding worship in churches tend to be about, they tend to veer towards style. So hymn, chorus, organ band, liturgy, spontaneity, Getty, hill song, repeat songs, don't repeat them, stand, sit, listen, don't listen, all of that. But the preacher takes this issue deeper. And therefore, what I want to suggest is that what he says here is relevant to all worshipers, irrespective of your preferred style. It's not that style is unimportant, but he goes deeper here. And so he gets personal, and he appears to speak directly to the worshiper. So notice how he begins. He says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In other words, be careful how you move towards this time, towards this place of worship. Think about where you're going. What are you walking into? Where are you heading and why? It's about your and my approach to worship. It's also about our preparation for worship. I don't know how you prepared for this service tonight or if you prepared at all. I kind of have to. So did Andrew. But if I wasn't involved up here this evening, would I have thought much about this or would I have just turned up, showed up? Worship is about entering a presence. It's about entering the presence. Now, I know we are never out of God's presence. Psalm 139 makes that clear. Where can I go, asks David, to flee from your presence? And the answer is there's nowhere you can go. But in our corporate worship, we gather to recognize, to celebrate, and to become aware or more aware of God's intimate presence with us and amongst us, because he's here. We enter this building together, but way more importantly, we enter the presence of God together as a group of people gathering for a very specific purpose, which I suppose begs the question then, why are you here? Why are we here? Is it habit? 
ritual, routine, social event, to connect with friends, to critique the speaker? Or did you come tonight with a sense of anticipation? Did you come this evening with a tangible expectation that you were coming along with others to enter the presence of Almighty God and to engage with Him? I want to suggest that any sense of anticipation and expectation is greatly enhanced whenever we prepare for worship. Now, I know that just getting here is a big enough deal and decision, and therefore the thought of also preparing to come maybe is just a big stretch. And here's the thing, God in his grace and because of his grace can and will meet us whether we prepare or not, whether we rush in here or whether we arrive I don't know how long before in order to still and prepare our hearts. But in saying that, I do believe the preacher encourages those who go to the house of God to guard their steps, to think through and somehow get ready for what you're coming here to do. And so let me, in, let me invite you or encourage you to think through what does that or what might that actually look like in my life this week as I think about coming together with others for worship. Prepare to go to worship. Consider your approach. Guard your steps. Secondly, go to listen. Look at verse or the next part of verse one. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. This is one of the most important reasons for gathering like this. I mean, the most important reason is worship, I know that. But in addition, or as part of worship, we gather to hear from God. It's not just about what I say, or what Andrew says, or what anybody up front up here says. It's about what our Heavenly Father might say. It's about what He communicates to us and into our hearts and minds. Now, again, I know that God can speak into our lives at any time, in any place. But sometimes in the midst of our busyness and in a world so dominated by noise, in a context characterized by the sound of so many voices clamoring for our attention, it can be difficult, can't it? Out there, in a sense, to hear the divine whisper. And a church service should or can provide the place, the space, where outside interference apart from upstairs, is reduced, where distractions decrease, where in a sense time slows down, and where the voice of God has a better chance of breaking through, of being heard. So say I realize there are any number of different reasons for coming to church, and most of them are probably fine, but let's make sure a core reason for being here is to draw near to God and listen. Listen to what he might say. Slight digression, but one of the primary, it's maybe not a slight digression, the primary way that God speaks to us in this context is through and via his word. And therefore, it is really important, and this is something we've thought about before, it is really important that we approach Scripture prepared to listen ready to hear. One of the little books that we have recommended for quite a while now, we have a bunch of them still do, 
is called Before You Open Your Bible, Nine Heart Postures to Prepare You to Read the Bible, or Nine Heart Postures to Prepare You to Listen to God. And those nine postures are that you come to listen prayerfully to God's Word, humbly, desperately, studiously, obediently, joyfully, expectantly, communally, and Christocentrically, with Jesus at the heart of it. Because whenever we approach God's word like this, we pin our ears back and we go near and we listen and we're in that place to listen. So approach and preparation, guard your steps and intention. I'm here to listen, God. They're really important. But what's the preacher's added advice when we get here? Verse two, do not be quick with your mouth Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. The message captures this like this. Don't shoot off your mouth or speak before you think. Don't be too quick to tell God what you think he wants to hear. Our natural tendency is to speak rather than to listen, isn't it? Because listening is way harder than speaking. Even when it comes to prayer, I must admit, I find it so hard to simply listen. I tend to do all the talking. I tend to generally tell God what I think needs to happen in various situations and what I think he needs to do. I rarely just listen. And I know that prayer and a relationship with God, as like with any relationship, involves two-way communication. But often, as I say, I talk and seldom listen. And mostly it's one way, and therefore I need to learn to be quiet. I need to learn to tune in. I sometimes utter so much and hear so little. And therefore, I need to remember and reestablish who is God in this relationship? It's not me. Who's in control here? Which is why the next phrase is just so good, so timely, so challenging. And I'm sure many of us picked up on it and we know it well. God is in heaven and you're on earth. It's not saying God's a million miles away. It's not saying God is distant or disconnected. What it is saying is that God is God and you are you. It's a reminder that there is this infinite qualitative distinction between us and God. And so whenever we come to worship, whenever we draw near and listen to a God who is everything that we're not, and so God, you're infinite and I'm finite. God, you're immortal, I'm mortal. God, you're invisible, I'm visible. God, you're almighty and I'm so weak. God, you're perfectly holy, I'm not. You're absolutely pure and I'm not. God, you're unchangeable, I'm fickle. God, you're faithful, I'm so prone to wander. God, your love and mine is so often compromised. And we could go on and on. God is in heaven, we're on earth. We have nothing to teach God without. We have everything to learn. Therefore, we need to listen to him. And so what's the preacher's advice out of the back of this? God is in heaven and you're on earth. And so let your words be few. Lots of words may impress, even fool others, but not and never God. Think about what you're going to say. Choose your words carefully before God because as the preacher goes on to say in verse three, 
There's one real danger associated with many words, and that is you'll end up saying something foolish. Or to quote another gem of biblical wisdom, this time from Proverbs, the more you talk, the more you're likely to sin. If you're wise, you'll stay quiet. The next little section from verses four to six, the preacher talks about making vows. And if he is speaking about the context of corporate worship, then at some level I think we need to consider the vows that we sometimes make within the context of corporate worship. I'm sure we've all made promises to God in a worship service to do something or to stop doing something, to go somewhere, to sign up for something, to increase our commitment or to increase our giving, to pray for that person, I promise I will, to pray for that family, a vow to forgive someone, to show more compassion, to obey a particular biblical command and so on. But the danger is in the cool light of day whenever a service is over and we step away from this place and we step away from this time, step away even from this atmosphere, we sometimes fail to deliver on the promises that we have made before God. And that's not good. And the preacher says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. In fact, he goes further. He says, it is better not to make any promises or any vows than to do so and then break them. And so he then offers one more piece of advice before he changes track again. But before we, we hear that piece of advice, someone has described that little section, Ecclesiastes, as what every worshiper of God should know, which is this. Prepare for worship. Consider your approach. Go near to listen. Remember who it is you come to worship. Reduce the word count and fulfill any vows you make. And so the preacher finishes this part with a nugget of timeless advice and wisdom. It's the end of verse 7. He says, therefore, I suppose this harks back to what's something like along the lines of what C.S. Lewis said, therefore, fear God. Now, we know this is not about being afraid of God in some kind of negative way, but rather this is about a profound sense of reverence and respect. It's about awe and wonder. And so in another translation of Ecclesiastes 5, 7, it says this. This is another version of the end of chapter, verse 7. Therefore, stand in awe of God. And so I thought we'd actually do that. I am about three quarters of the way through this sermon, at least in terms of what I've prepared because it goes on. But considering that my words are meant to be few, I may actually stop at this point. But I invite you to stand with me for a second. Can you do that? The prophet Habakkuk wrote this, Lord, I have heard of your fame, and so I stand in awe of who you are and what you have done. And so, before I hand back to the guys, as we stand in silence, I invite you to finish a sentence. Lord, I stand in awe of you because...
going to sing, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. Let me pray before the gates come. Lord, I stand in awe of you because you are God. You are God in heaven and here am I on earth. And you are worthy of my worship. And forgive me whenever I rush into your presence and don't consider what I'm coming to do. God, what a privilege it is to be welcomed into your presence, to sit at your feet, to exalt you, to glorify you, to sing our hearts out to you, to bring our love, but also to come near and to listen. To listen to the God of the universe speak truth into our hearts and minds. And so I pray tonight that we will have heard you over and above all human voices. We'll have heard you speak. And we will continue to hear you speak as we leave this place. Lord, we long to worship you.